This is Macro Horizons, episode 15. What happens in Q1 stays in Q1. Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Hill and John Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of April 22nd. And a friendly reminder that the II survey is underway and a vote for our team is a vote to make strategy fun again. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market, but more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. It was a low vol week, and even strong economic data proved insufficient to trigger a more material sell-off in the treasury market. Ian, what's your take on what we've learned since last time? I'd be loath to characterize the holiday shortened week as a complete non-event, because we did learn a few things worth noting. First of all, there were several sessions in which we had strong overnight volumes that were accompanied by a reasonable amount of buying interest. This suggests that there are pockets of demand, particularly overseas, that are interested in dip buying when 10-year yields get anywhere close to 260. That'll be informative going forward as we consider how the range will play out over the course of the summer. We had a massive repricing to a lower range for treasury yields at the end of March, due in large part to the FOMC's abandonment of the two rate hikes it had penciled in for the year. Now we're in the process of seeing exactly how far rates will back up when we have a risk-on sentiment emerging. So, in that context, with Fed funds at 240 and presumably the end of the cycle, 10-year yields north of 260 have clearly emerged as a dip-buying opportunity, at least on the first attempt. A range between 235 and 275 for the next few months seems intuitive, unless we have a breakout or a repricing based on a fundamental shift, presumably something out of Europe or China. There was some progress made on the China-U.S. trade negotiations, although the progress certainly wasn't as rapid as we might have been expecting, given that we're now well into the second quarter and the prospects for a deal are still a month or two off. And that seems to be on a rolling basis. The retail sales report in March was particularly strong. This isn't a surprise per se, It was actually pretty consensus, although it does support the Fed's narrative that the consumer had a temporary slowdown that will resolve in favor of continued spending as the year unfolds. Keep in mind, that's the Fed's big bet at this point in the cycle. If, in fact, the weakness that we saw earlier in the year were to continue or to extend throughout the first half of the year, then the Fed might be risking a policy error by not easing sooner. In terms of other overseas information, we 
did see a particularly weak round of PMIs coming out of Europe, focused on the manufacturing sector in Germany and France in particular, well below 50, very consistent with the ongoing contraction, as well as the residual fallout from the trade war. We also saw better than expected Chinese GDP, which complicates the trade negotiations on the margin. The White House's current position is that the weaker the Chinese economy becomes, the stronger the U.S.'s position in terms of the negotiation. If we see strength in both economies, or rather a slowdown that's not as bad as feared, may actually result in emboldened stances by both parties, which, if anything, simply makes the process longer than we might have otherwise expected. So on net, the events of the week haven't really changed our market call. We continue to see range-bound consolidation. The front end of the market, once we get two-year yields anywhere close to 250, we'd expect to see dip buying emerge there as well. We're moving to a very important moment for the market where we start to get more economic data and we figure out whether or not we can simply rely on the adage that what happens in Q1 stays in Q1. So the operative question that we've been struggling with this week is we've seen a reasonably significant sell-off in the treasury market that has brought 10-year yields back to call it 260, 262. There has been a little bit of buying interest along the way, but the debate quickly turned into whether or not anything above 260 should be a fade. And that is a reasonable question. I mean, we're back to levels that we were at across a variety of benchmarks in the lead up to the March FOMC. And just recall the 2019, 2020, and 2021 dot were all revised down 50 basis points. So in order to get two-year yields, three-year yields, five-year yields back up this far to say nothing of 10-year yields, what must have happened and is happening is kind of an increase in term premium. But the way that I'd phrase it is term premiums less negative than before, just because, you know, some of the apocalyptic rhetoric or sudden stop or we're already in a recession, that risk has wound down in recent weeks. And John, I think you've made this point recently that it's not that the economy is now back to screaming higher. Rather, it's just that we've received information, to your point, that confirms that things did not come crumbling down in Q1 or as we moved into Q2. So from a broader narrative perspective, very little has changed in terms of outlook. It's just that maybe the timeline has been shifted a bit further down the road and people's fears maybe were a bit overblown a couple of weeks ago. Well, it's also very consistent with the idea that the pendulum of economic sentiment tends to swing rather dramatically. And I'd argue we're probably somewhere back toward the middle. People's outlooks are not all of a sudden much rosier. They're just incrementally less dire. This is certainly consistent with our approach and what we've been anticipating for the first half of the year. What I have found to be fascinating is that to a large extent, it's really played out in the 10 and 30 year sector rather than the front end of the curve. 
My baseline assumption was that after the market repriced in early January, that any incremental positive or negative sentiment would play out in the very front end of the curve as the market either priced in or priced out the potential for another rate hike. What we learned in March was that another rate hike in 2019 is completely off the board, and frankly, 2020 seems unlikely almost regardless of how the data plays out. So instead of what at least I was anticipating, that it would be more of a two-year sector response, instead, what we're seeing is that it's playing out further out the curve. And that makes perfect intuitive sense as a function of Fed credibility. They've only said that they're going to be on pause one year, maybe two years in 2020. But the idea that they would then stay on pause past that horizon or could credibly commit to doing so becomes a much kind of taller order, if you will. So it makes sense then that you're seeing the repricing take place further out the curve. So in that world then, does it make sense that twos and fives back up near Fed funds is a good buying opportunity? Intuitively, I'd say that it does, especially if one's baseline assumption is that the next move from the Fed is going to be a rate cut or a series of rate cuts. However, it's difficult to argue that we're necessarily at a yield peak for twos and fives, given where we are in that repricing out of dire economic expectations. So not quite ready to call the top for two-year yields at this point, but it certainly does make sense to start scaling in, given our baseline assumption that the next move is going to be a cut, if not a series of easing. And the reality is, you know, at this point, any opportunity to execute in positions at or a little bit above Fed funds and yield terms, probably with hindsight, is going to look attractive, even if you don't exactly hit the yield highs. And I think that's similar to what we've been talking about, or I guess what you two have been debating in terms of when is the time to scale into the cyclical re-steepener trade. Sure, you might lose a little bit in further flattening or a further sell-off in this case, but the more durable trend for the rest of this cycle is likely going to be toward lower yields and a steeper curve. So with supply on the horizon, notably the five and seven year auction, what do you think this means for the takedown bin? So I think it's going to be interesting in that the kind of traditional way that ourselves and others have thought about how the market takes down supply is you see an auction concession or yield move higher in the several sessions leading up to or intraday into the close of a treasury auction. And I think kind of this backup we've seen over the past several sessions will definitely add some attractiveness to particularly fives and sevens at this week's auctions. But more interestingly, a trend that we've been seeing more recently this year, essentially since the Fed hit pause, was that rather than seeing intraday sell-offs in order to make the notes a little bit more attractive, what we've actually seen is that in February and March, in fives and sevens in particular, the auctions actually came at lower yields than the preceding session's close which is a little bit counterintuitive that supply would be coming at the local highs. And then in fives, the auctions, generally speaking, proved to be a good buying opportunity with a little more bullish follow through. But actually in sevens, what we saw both in February and March was that the auction stop actually ended up being a local yield low. So if you bought the auction, the downtrade that followed meant that the auction actually came at the local yield lows with a sell-off that followed the session and actually two sessions afterwards. 
So, Ben, you track the stats pretty closely. What are you seeing in terms of changes in buying behavior, either the breakdown between the directs and the indirects or foreign allocations just over the course of the last few months? Is there any trend worth highlighting? I think, and this is something that we highlighted earlier in the year and has really persisted, and that is even though foreign buying has kind of showed a slight moderation, domestic investment funds are the ones who have stepped up to fill that void. And the clear trend in stronger direct bidding that was characteristic earlier in the year has cooled off a little bit, but is still kind of an interesting trend to watch to see what we can assume are domestic investment funds changing their bidding style based on where yields are at the time. Kind of in a similar vein, we got tick data for February this past week. And one of the big takeaways to me was, in general, one, you saw an increase in foreign ownership of treasuries. You saw it spread out across a variety of countries, Japan, China, the UK, what have you. You know, if you recall back in February, this was a period where the market was repricing at a significantly lower plateau. So the way I'm interpreting larger foreign ownership at that period isn't necessarily that foreign ownership was pushing yields down, more just that foreign demand was comfortable at these valuations in the context of the global outlook, which if wasn't happening would be more worrisome. So one could imagine lower yields, less foreign interest. We didn't see that play out as the reality is even at lower yield levels, treasuries continue to offer some enticement, though, of course, once you factor in the FX hedging costs, that can go away depending on where the foreign investor sits. One of the things that I'd add to that is the low volatility nature of the sell-off that we have seen since yields bottomed at the end of March really speaks to a market that is more adrift rather than any high conviction. One of the things that I would highlight in that context was Wednesday's session, the overnight move when we had a significant amount of Chinese data, we had elevated volumes, the 10-year sector was the focal point, and still the market was only able to sell off two basis points. I think that's very consistent with a market that has exhausted some of the underlying bearishness. And to John, your point earlier, that yield range we saw in February where foreign accounts added a lot of treasuries, that's more or less where we're back to now. And I think that that's telling. The other thing that I would add on that front is given the overall lethargy and tone of this week's podcast, I think it's pretty clear that the market isn't especially exciting at this point. And in some ways, that's what the central banks wanted, right? We went through a period of relative stress in terms of financial conditions, tightening, implied volatilities, uncertainties. Things got pretty risky out there at the end of December into January. So a dovish Fed should suppress vol, should provide a support of stability just in terms of a classic dovish monetary policy impulse. So Ian, I really like the way you framed it of a low volatility sell-off. Because when you think of volatility as a proxy for financial conditions, the reason why we had rallied so hard in the treasury market, or at least a significant reason, was a flight to quality and was really just represented the risk that we were tipping into a recession. As those uncertainties have appeared unfounded, at least for now, you've seen volatility drift lower and kind of a repricing slightly higher in yields. But even then, you know, we're talking about a sell-off and 
Tensor at what, 260? It wasn't too long ago that when we were talking about a sell-off, at least a three-handle was a possibility. That's a very good point, John. And if we think about what has really changed the tone in the equity market, it's actually been a decidedly more dovish Fed. So that leaves me to wonder, if the low volatility is entirely a function of the Fed and to a lesser extent other global central banks, what happens when the market becomes convinced that the Fed really isn't going to deliver a rate cut anytime soon? Will that spike volatility? Or will we see the Fed try to get in front of that changing sentiment with additional rhetoric? I think that's a really good point, Ian, just because when eventually vol does pick back up, I think you're going to see the natural response of, oh, this was inevitable. Oh, it was coming eventually. The short vol trade was so crowded. It was only a matter of time. But to your point, it's important to consider what the Fed has shown us in terms of their reaction function to a spike in volatility, whether it be in stocks or rates. That's going to serve as kind of a cap as to how extreme things can get. Because at a certain point, if we see a stock correction like we did at the end of 2018 and a VIX spike similar to that, the Fed's going to step in, whether that be with rhetoric or action remains to be seen. But the fact of the matter is the Powell put is there and there's been a clear willingness to use it on the part of the Fed. So one interpretation of that is that central banks are now active sellers of all. Yes, I think that's a fair way to think about it, at least in the sense that they want easier financial conditions, and therefore they're going to try to ease financial conditions where possible. And in financial asset terms, that translates into less uncertainty, lower implied volatility. I would also say when we take a step back, one of the kind of remarkable things about the previous few months Equities are basically unchanged since September, October. What has it taken just to get equities back to unchanged over the past prior periods? And Ian, to your point about the Fed, you know, tens are now, what, 60, 70 basis points lower just to get equities to tread water. So yes, we've had some very strong months here and there, but if you look over a multi-month period, we're in essence flat, but in order to achieve that flatness in equities, rates had to drop significantly further. Ben, to your question, what if we see a vol spike now? Well, rates don't have the space to fall that much more unless we get a seriously inverted curve chance of cuts. And at that point, we're looking at a significantly higher probability of a recession. This will obviously leave the onus on the Fed to figure out how they're going to respond to any more significant slowdown on the real side of the economy. However, the political side of the economy continues to complicate matters, to put it lightly. What we have seen is we have seen the White House continue to press the Fed to be easier with the introduction of the notion of a 50 basis point rate cut or even going back into QE. And so I think that's interesting because as we've debated the likelihood of a so-called fine-tuning 50 basis point rate cut, you have to think that those on the committee who are really worried about maintaining central bank independence are not going to want to be viewed as capitulating to the president, even if when all else equal, maybe such a move would be appropriate. I think that introduces the reality that the Fed is going to hold until it is incredibly obvious that they really need to cut rates. Doesn't that ultimately imply that when they do cut rates, it will be a larger rate cutting campaign and not just a fine tuning ease? 
I think that's exactly right because the situation in which they're going to need to ease policy is going to warrant more than just a one-off adjustment. So stubborn Fed, late Fed? It's possible. I would say that those who are calling for an emergency 50 basis point cut were very outside the mainstream and frankly didn't even sit on the committee. Larry Kudlow, Stephen Moore come to mind. But it's worth keeping in mind who some of these pundits are. Stephen Moore was calling for rate hikes in July 2008 and January 2009. Common economic logic suggests that's directionally wrong. So the idea that they are calling for something outside the mainstream certainly does not mean that it will or should happen. To be fair, an emergency 50 basis point ease is entirely different than a well-telegraphed fine-tuning rate cut later this year characterized as something closer to preemptive rather than reactive. Yeah, that's fair. And I think in reality, the core takeaway is that White House pressure on the Fed complicates the communication around any cut whether it's seen as warranted due to presidential pressure, whether it's a one-off, whether it's an emergency, dot, dot, dot. It just gets a lot more difficult to explain and uh, therefore, I think, incrementally makes it less likely to happen until it really needs to. Speaking of things that are difficult to explain, where do we stand on Trump's board nominations for the Fed? Well, we mentioned Stephen Moore, but it appears that both Moore and Herman Cain might be less and less likely to actually be either officially nominated and or confirmed. And it sounds like the White House is also interviewing other candidates. It's worth pointing out four sitting members of the board have been nominated and confirmed by this administration. And the most recent two are really the outliers in terms of the politicalization or the level of political involvement the two have had. Quarles, Clarita Powell, frankly, was nominated for the chair seat, as well as Bowman, all thus far have kind of been mainstream-ish with the Fed. So the takeaway for me in all of this is just as the White House interviews other candidates, there are two empty seats. We should expect two nominees to get put there. And it wouldn't be surprising if more traditional or broadly accepted candidates end up getting formally nominated and confirmed later on. So what you're saying is that the recent Fed nominees have not been the gold standard for monetary policymakers. So more germane for the current trading environment, it seems that the low volatility regime has effectively lulled some of the treasury market to sleep. Well, the holiday-shortened trading week certainly didn't help in that regard. Ben, are, are you asleep? No, no, no. I, I was just resting my eyes. Did someone say aye, aye? No, Ian. He didn't say aye, aye. In the week ahead, there's not a great deal of information in the offing in terms of economic data until we get to Friday. Friday's real GDP print is going to be the biggest question And with a consensus at 1.8%, a modest start to the year seems to be the baseline assumption. We'll obviously be watching the contribution from personal consumption as a key indicator about the trajectory of growth this year. We do have durable goods that precedes that on Thursday. However, the big focus is obviously going to be on GDP. 
we continue to like the 262 level in tens as a buying opportunity. The level has held reasonably well. If we push beyond there, there's a bit of a volume bulge in that 266 to 267 range that could be difficult to push through. Again, the market does seem to be looking for buying opportunities. We spend a reasonable amount of time trying to figure out if we do have a Fed that is perpetually on hold, what does that imply for inflation? And what does that imply for inflation as it flows through to longer dated yields and term premium? Looking a bit further ahead on the calendar, we see the FOMC meeting on the 1st of May. And while no one is expecting anything in terms of a shift in monetary policy, we struggle to imagine that the Fed is in a position to outdove its dovishness from March, which as a result might lead the market to take away a more hawkish interpretation of the Fed than is otherwise intended. Again, that's a bit of nuance, but it's nuance that could ultimately be very meaningful. After all, this is the year of the Fed, it's the year of the pivot, and timing the point in which the Fed either rekindles ambitions of another rate hike or concedes that an ease is the most appropriate move will really be imperative. There's a fair amount of supply this week. We have 40 billion twos, 41 billion fives, and 32 billion sevens. Underwriting of treasuries has been surprisingly strong over the course of 2019. We're confident in the takedown prospects for the front-end focus supply. If anything, it should marginally add to the curve flattening trade as a bit of a concession is built in for twos and to a lesser extent fives. Sevens have always been the preferred habitat of overseas participants in the treasury market. It's far enough away from the front end that it's not as vulnerable to monetary policy expectations. And it's still close enough that the broader inflation outlook tends to have less of an impact. It follows intuitively that the recent sell-off that we've seen is at least in part an auction concession. And an auction concession ahead of the long holiday weekend does set the auction process up reasonably well. We've reached the point where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to listen this far. We'll say it one last time, at least for today. The institutional investor poll is now open. And note, II is no longer simply a nautical affirmation, but it's also an affirmation that we've at least marginally contributed to the broader market discourse. Aye, aye, Captain. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. 
This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.